Good afternoon and a warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time. I'm Jen Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 this evening and as always followed by Done By Law, presented by the Community Legal Centres. But before that, the second and final part of the interview between Dr Sam Shaheen and Professor Noam Chomsky as they presented the 2021 Edward Said Memorial Lecture in Adelaide. Peace and anti-war activist Brian Terrell is back home in Iowa after a successful visit to bases in Europe and a speaking tour. Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees looks at the Morrison government's Australian way and he's not impressed. And in the final half hour, the impact on Palestinian women farmers of the continuing Israeli blockade and bombing of their homes and land. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and we'll see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane, listener, when as the coal dust settles into the post-COP26 atmosphere, the post-COP that atmosphere, we can breathe, although I recommend not too deeply, breathe a sigh of relief that the public purse will not be bereft, robbing us of the services the community demands, as Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle informed us the public purse would be empty if it were not for coal. And thankfully we can see coal, 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 old King Coal, stretching into whatever future there is for planet Earth supported by the caring fossil corporates who applauded the decision not to phase out coal. This gives us the certainty that we can transform economically from coal to coal. And environmentally? Certainly. This gives us the certainty we can transform from coal to coal in a positive economic environment. And to emphasise their commitment to this transition, Barnacle and Big Supremo scuttled them more, Lash Sun, a.k.a. Scummo, assured us a government-financed coal-fired power station was still on the table, as they say. But, but how does that conform with phasing down coal? Are you stupid or, or like you know something? Where, where do you think we get coal from? Down. It's not up. It's like down, under the ground. So, like, what better way to phase down. Barnacle did admit he does not support the final COP26 declaration. Uh, but aren't you part of the coalition government which signed it? You've got to pronounce it like properly. It's the coalition government. As True Blue Aussie sensibly therefore supported the change from phase out coal to phase down, from out to down, leaving planet Earth down and out. But in case we're a bit worried about extracting fossils as far as the planet can stretch, be reassured. Carbon capture and storage, burying your head in the sand, is the technological panacea. Dig it up and put it back. Expressed beautifully by Santosas the Prophet Supremo Kevin Hope, your gullible. Direct quote, no embellishment. True Blue Aussie has the capacity to be a carbon storage superpower due to its capacity to store CO2. I can feel our chest swelling already, listener. Doesn't it make us so proud? True Blue Aussie, a superpower. A superpower repository for the world's waste. Kevin, we put to Kevin, if it's important that we store the CO2 underground, and it's underground before we dig it up, why not just leave it underground and not dig it up in the first place? and prevent the government providing essential services like trained killers and police and corporate welfare? 
didn't you listen to the wise words Barnigal had to say? <laughs> Sorry for being so stupid, Kevin. A wise Kevin putting a stupid Kevin in his place. No, you're right. We've always had enormous respect for Barnacle's wisdom. Seriously, this Barnacle and wisdom are so light years apart, he probably wasn't even born with a wisdom tooth. No consolation, unfortunately, as he oversees the destruction of life and the planet and sees that as insignificant compared to the profits of the great resource giants. Indeed, we'll need more and more coal extraction to keep our essential services going. Essential services like trained killing, as the Minister for Trained Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, says... We must increase our train killer expenditure to $50 billion a year, which is a hell of a lot of coal, and a hell of a lot of train killing for that matter. Backed up by former caring business class party functionary and later Senator Arthur Sins of Dunnis, who was rewarded for his sins with Ambassador to Washington, who said our nuclear submarines and the AUKUS offensive arrangement were about projecting power north to the Indo-Pacific region to maintain peace. Ah yes, war is peace. Peace can't be real peace unless there's a war so we can have that peace. And Socialist Party backbencher Peter Killall, well obviously Socialist Party, he would have attacked the whole idea of going nuclear and spending a fortune on train killing. Except he said we should immediately buy or lease nuclear submarines off the current production lines because the long lead time, uh, lead time leaves Trublawazi's defence for these coming decades dangerously vulnerable at a time of increasing regional volatility. Oh yes, I, I forgot the bloody Chinese. Another principled socialist position. Pete consolidated our appreciation of his wisdom after former Socialist Party Big Supremo and former world's worst ex-treasurer Paul said Taiwan was none of our business and we should jettison the very sensible plan to attack China. Important speech today by former dear leader and grand appeaser Comrade Keating where he talks down True Blue Aussie yet again. Pete was at his incisive best. Isn't he a, you know, like, like, you know, deep, like, you know, thinker? Amid all this wisdom from Pete and Arthur and Peter, wonder if they've considered we could save a lot of money and maintain the peace by not spending one cent on any submarines. There's a hundred billion dollar plus that coal won't have to raise. But let's spare a thought for the poor editor of the New York Times, for even a hundred billion won't buy peace or freedom for her or him, facing a hundred and seventy-five years solitary confinement in a maximum security cell, or maybe even the death penalty for that most heinous of criminal offences, exposing U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world war crimes. This week exposing a cover-up of a 2019 airstrike in Syria that killed at least 64 women and children, ordered by a classified American special operations unit tasked with ground operations in Syria. Following the expose, U.S. of Central Command acknowledged the slaughter had happened and said it was justified. See, the real crime is exposing U.S. of war crimes, and U.S. of war crimes are not war crimes because the good guys can do no wrong and only react to the crimes of the bad guys.
like these at least 64 women and children. And so based on the Julian Assange precedent, the editor of the New York Times must face 175 years and all the death penalty because hypocrisy would be anathema to the good guys. Keeping up this cheery note with increasing death and painful disease among workers dealing with silica dust, the state government has announced daring, uh, caring engineering st um, engineered stone employers must be licensed to protect their lazy Aboriginal workers. From last week, preferably to protect workers immediately. Well, in fact, by this time next year. Uh, but that's another whole year for workers to suffer. Look, obviously we have to give caring employers time to adjust to the new rules. Uh, what's there to adjust to? Make it safe as they should in the first place. We all know caring employers need certainty and they will make it safe in 12 months. Uh, but, but the only certainty is that more workers will suffer. Therefore, in the meantime, we recommend for workers to not breathe while at work. But, but many are not breathing because of work. Listen, uh, another case of don't hold your breath. Ad for supermarket giant kills your budget, assuring us we can't enjoy Christmas without handing it a fortune, says, value the true blue Aussie way, which must be the value equivalent of Scummo's can-do capitalism, the true blue Aussie way, solving the very climate problem it has created. Doubtless the value is they value people falling for such crap. But real value for money when you commission one of the big four world accounting behemoths to advise you, like the New South Wales Treasury, which wants to corporatise the state's rail assets and hired KPMG to provide it with ammunition. KPMG advising wisely the move would save the public purse $15 billion a year. And then the former head of transport for New South Wales bloke called Rod Staples commissioned KPMG to show the move was not viable and KPMG advised wisely the move would leave the budget $10 billion worse off. For his trouble, Staples was dismissed without reason, so there we have it. KPMG says their fifteen billion billion KPMG says they're fifteen billion dollars better off by being ten billion dollars worse off. Or the right hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Or does, but what's it matter when there's a quid in it? The good news is Scummo and the team spend billions every year getting all that reliable advice from these beer moths rather than waste money on public servants who used to provide that information. So that's why all their economic assurances up and predictions are so reliable. They're told what they want to hear. By the way, Oni's answer to climate change, if there is such a thing, is can-do capitalism the true blue Aussie way, comment. Scummo added, not don't do governments. I've got a feeling he didn't think that last bit through too well, or, or he has made a monumental admission. Report on the death of author Wilbur Smith in South Africa said he was a big game hunter, and then a little later, as a conservationist. <laughs> um, oh, no comment. And also, without comment, complaining about the fees charged by the privatised monopoly airports, Supremo of our also privatised airline that used to be our airline, Alan Joystick, attacked the abuse of market power. Alan Joystick. Then again, finally, Lord Rupert of Wapping told his Newsbury Limited Annual General Meeting that Facebook and Google need significant reform because they censor and silence 
conservative voices. Well, Lord Rupert, like you, we don't. Look, we've just quoted you. Good afternoon. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports radical community radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action with some of the people who are on strike today. Can you tell us your names and how old you are? Uh, so my name's Ivy and I'm 12 years old. My name is Marsha and I'm 8 years old. My name's Layla and I'm 11 years old. Inequality is at a 70 year high. Our jobs are going offshore, our jobs are being casualised. 40% of us are trapped in insecure work. The richest 1% have more than the 70% of us at the bottom. And workers will stand up and fight. You've never seen a fight before until you back the Australian workers into a corner and tell them they've got no rights. Those workers will fight. 3CR Union Issues and Workers' Struggles. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. We now have the second part of the talk organised by Australian Friends of Palestine Association in South Australia featuring Dr Sam Chahin speaking with Professor Noam Chomsky. When Israel carries out one of its murderous attacks on Gaza, it repeatedly runs out of weapons. In fact, that just happened in the last attack. They ran out of precision bombs. So they turned to the Godfather to replenish their resources. That's pretty easy because the United States stores weapons in Israel in case it ever needs them for its own adventures. 
so it can just transfer weapons from its Israeli stores to the Israeli army. And that's the kind of relationship. Is that going to last? And as you said, that's nothing like it remotely in in the world. I think it's very shaky. You take a look at what's happening in the U.S. population. You go back about 10 years. Israel was the darling of the liberals and the left liberal sector of the population. Not any longer, especially among younger people, among the liberal community. They have more support for Palestinians than for Israel. Israeli actions, especially in Gaza, have become so barbaric that it's turned a lot of the population against them. But it's happened very clearly. Support for Israel now in the United States is based in the evangelical community, which is deeply anti-Semitic, but supports Israel because of all kind of tales about Armageddon and Christ coming and so on and so forth. Besides the evangelical support for Israel is, of course, in the military and the security system, which are closely linked to Israel, and in ultranationalists uh, who think we just ought to smash up everyone in the world, you know, the Trump base. It's a very big difference from a few years ago. Now, it hasn't changed policy. It hasn't affected the political class. But sooner or later, more or less democratic country, public opinion can't be totally ignored. And it's beginning to show, like after the last Israeli attack on Gaza in May, there was a real breakthrough. For the first time, major columnists in the New York Times elsewhere were saying, maybe it's time to reconsider our military aid to Israel. That's very important. If there was an authentic Palestinian solidarity group in the United States, they would have been pressing this for a long time. There's a lot of potential public support for cutting military aid to Israel. In fact, cutting all aid. A lot of the population doesn't may have rotten reasons. They just don't like to give away money to other countries. But whatever the reasons, giving away funding Israel is not popular. And there's a deeper reason. Iran. Iran is supposed to be the greatest threat we face. Iranian nuclear weapons. Let's put aside the reality. Let's say it's true. There's a very simple solution. Impose a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East. Actually, the New York Times editors recently obliquely recognized that. They said, you know, that would be a perfect solution, but it can't be implemented because Israeli nuclear weapons are non-negotiable. That's the editors of the New York Times. Why are they non-negotiable? Because that's what the population of the U.S. wants? I don't think so. population of the United States would be delighted to see a resolution of what they are indoctrinated to believe is the greatest threat to American security, Iranian nuclear programs. Notice that everyone in the world supports that. The Arab states have long supported it. Iran supports it. Global South all supports it. Europe doesn't raise any objections. The U.S. vetoes it. Obama was the most recent. Every time it comes up in an international forum, it's vetoed by the United States. Everyone who thinks about it knows the reasons. You're not allowed to say it. it violates the catechism. Uh, the reason is 
it would open Israel's nuclear weapons to inspection. I can add that the United States does not officially recognize that Israel has nuclear weapons. Of course, everyone knows it, but they don't recognize it. And there's a reason for that, too. If the U.S. recognizes that Israel has nuclear weapons, then U.S. law comes into operation. And Lewis law, you can argue about it, but it arguably bans to countries that develop nuclear weapons outside the international framework. Neither political party wants to open that door. A solidarity movement in the United States would have opened that door a long time ago, and it still can. And it's beginning to move. In Congress, after the May attacks, one congresswoman, Betsy McCollum, actually introduced a resolution calling for reconsidering U.S. military aid. That can move on and get public support. If it moves on to the point where the U.S. essentially joins the world, says game's over, you've got to accept it, then you can see a move towards settling the, towards moving towards a two-state settlement of some kind, maybe of the kind that was developed in some detail by the Geneva negotiations a couple of years ago. Non-official, but they had high figures in both Israel and Palestine. They came up with a sort of reasonable agreement involving some land swaps, a couple other things. There's talk about the difficulty of removing the Israeli settlers. I think that's vastly exaggerated. Um, there are settlers who are religious fanatics. God told us it's our land, so we're going to keep it. Okay, they can stay in a Palestinian state if they want. If some Jews from Brooklyn want to hold on to every rock, fine, stay there. Uh, most of the settlers are there for economic reasons. They're getting subsidized villas in towns built with, for the comfort of the settlers, plenty of public resources go into making their life very comfortable in these uh, suburbs. There's huge infrastructure projects for Jews only, of course, or visitors. Somebody can drive from his subsidized villa in Mala Dumim and go to his job in Tel Aviv and not even know that there's a Palestinian anywhere. Maybe you see some shepherd up in the hills, a nice biblical view, but uh, they can be moved from their subsidized villas in Maldumim and Ariel to subsidize housing inside Israel. It's a task, but it's not beyond possibility. So I don't think that's a main problem. I think the major problem right now is the gap between the U.S. political class and popular opinion, which is shifting notably shifting, and can shift further if we bring up other issues. Then there's the rest of the world. Europe should find the courage to stand up against the master and not just make little weak pronouncements about how things aren't nice, but actually do something about it. Europe is Israel's main trading partner. They don't have to give Israel privileges that they don't deserve. They can withdraw them, follow international law, and accept 
the fact that everything that's happening in the occupied territories is totally illegal. It's not even debatable. So they could stand up for that. So could Australia. So could other countries. So there's a lot of possibilities. I think what's needed is some courage and some dedication. I want to get to a subject that I know you had a view on, and that is the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. What is your current view and has that view shifted in recent times? Uh, My view is about the same as it was in the 1990s when uh, Uri Avneri and his Gush Shalom movement initiated a boycott divestment program. There are no sanctions. Initiated a boycott divestment program focused on the occupied territories said Israel should be anything associated with the occupied territories should be boycotted and funds should be divested. That has a lot of appeal. In fact, every successful step that the BDS movement has been involved in has been in the occupied territories uh, for good reasons. That has a strong, powerful basis. Everything in the occupied territories is illegal. It's in violation of Security Council resolutions. has no justification. Uh, The biggest achievement so far was the Presbyterian Church, major church denomination, which called for boycott divestment of the occupied territories and any U.S. corporations that are involved in the occupied territories. A major step forward. There have been others. There was one just a couple of weeks ago when Ben and Jerry's said they were not going to the ice cream place. They would not have any outlets in the occupied territories. They didn't mention Israel. In the occupied territories. Uh, That's the right move. Those policies are very successful. And as long as the BDS movement conforms to that, it has been successful. Unfortunately, their program has a set of principles, kind of dogmas, which they're not allowed to challenge. And the dogmas are self-destructive. The dogmas are, first of all, first the occupied territories, which is fine. Second is boycott BDS of Israel until it allows all the refugees to return. That's suicidal. Israel's never going to allow all the refugees to return. Everybody knows it. PLO has understood that for 50 years. You look at the PLO, Arab states, negotiations offers. They call for some symbolic return of refugees. Not all of them. All of them means Israel goes out of existence. Not going to accept that. So asking for that is just to say, let's keep the occupation going. It's a demand that can't be met. No, I've been involved with lots of activist groups in my life, national liberation groups. I have never been involved with one that insisted on policies that were going to harm the victims. And this policy harms the Palestinians. It basically says can't do anything. There's a third plank in the platform which says we have to continue boycott and divestment in Israel until it provides 
equal rights for Palestinians inside Israel. Sort of fair. They should do it. But it doesn't distinguish Israel from a lot of other countries. Pretty easy to name. You and I can name them pretty easily. In fact, we live in them. But uh, as soon as you open, as soon as you insist on that policy, it's a gift to the far right. Because they can come back and say, why are you picking Israel? Because you're anti-Semites. So we have to pass laws blocking BDS, which is exactly what happens. Then you start fighting about the laws or about academic freedom and so on. You forget about the Palestinians. Those two tactics, I mean, any serious movement has to construct its tactics so that they will help the victims not follow some principle that somebody handed down. The tactics of any movement should be designed to help the victims. I've had a lot of experience with this. So during the Vietnam War, a lot of young people, you know, nice young people, good-hearted, decided that the way to end the war is to become weathermen, go down Main Street and smash up windows and get into fights and so on. The Vietnamese were appalled. They knew exactly what that that would lead to. Strengthening support for the war. Carry out those activities. Strengthen support for the war. They didn't care about whether young Americans felt good. They wanted to survive. It was was a real battle to try to convince people this is not the way to go. And you do have those conflicts constantly, but The crucial point is activist movements which are genuinely in solidarity with the victims will design their policies so that they help the victims, not so that we feel good because we feel we're doing the right thing. That's a difficult point to understand. Perhaps at least experience shows that, but it's essential. There have been real opportunity costs. Things that could have been done weren't done because they weren't part of the doctrines. Like what I mentioned before, uh, everything I just said about Iran could have been pushed by the solidarity movement if it was paying attention to the needs of Palestinians. But that wasn't one of the doctrines, so they didn't do it. Even more, there's other U.S. laws, the Ley Law, which bans military aid to military units overseas that are involved in systematic human rights abuses. IDF qualifies 100%. A couple of people mention it, but it hasn't been pushed. It could be pushed. The whole military economic aid issue could be pushed. U.S. policy could be pushed. Support for the McCollum legislation. Other things. They're just not priorities because the doctrines say Occupied territories, refugees return, uh, equal rights for Palestinians. You can argue that those are good positions. They should happen, and we should press for them to happen, but not by sanctions and boycott. That's just meaningless, and in fact harmful to Palestinians. It's continually shown by now a lot of the BDS discussion in the United States is about laws passed by states which ban BDS activities. That's not what the discussion should be about. It should be about Palestinians and what's happening to them. But if you 
pursue those tactics, yes, that's what the discussion will be about. And you lose your effectiveness. Those are things that should be thought about. My own view is that Uri of Neri, who was a really important person, I think he had it correctly. Perhaps that's a good segue into a, a subject that's received much publicity in Australia again, uh, and that is the applicability of the term apartheid to Israel's rule over the Palestinians. The, the 1973 Apartheid Convention and the 1998 Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court define apartheid as made up of three key elements, an intent to maintain the domination by one racial group over another, systematic oppression by one racial group over another, and one or more inhumane acts as part of that oppression. In recent times, Human Rights Watch, led by the respected U.S. Attorney Ken Roth, concluded that Israeli authorities are indeed committing crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution against the Palestinian people. Do you think Israel's rule over the Palestinian people meets that definition of apartheid? I mean, I'm glad that Human Rights Watch did that. I think it's valuable. They were following B'Tselem, Israel's major human rights organizations, which had already come out with that conclusion. However, if you look at it carefully, it should be somewhat more nuanced. So within Israel proper, plenty of repression. Uh, Palestinians in many ways are second-class citizens, but I don't think it meets the level of apartheid. It's like, unfortunately, what we find many other places. We're not unfamiliar with it ourselves. In the occupied territories, I think it's much worse than apartheid. Take Compare South Africa. South Africa depended on its black population. That was 85% of the population. They established all sorts of awful restrictions and rules. They established Bantu stands, but they tried to get the world to accept the Bantu stands. They tried to make them viable, to develop them. As far as I recall, I may be wrong about this. Israel was the only country to recognize any of them. Siske, uh, I can check that. But the world never accepted that. Now, Israel's policy in the occupied territories is much worse than that. Israel just wants the Palestinians to get out, wants to get rid of them, doesn't want to offer them decent living conditions or the world will accept their the way they're uh, sequestered. Doesn't want that. Just wants to get rid of them. They're unpeople. It's trying to make life unlivable for them. So they'll go. Uh, I should add that, like other neocolonial systems, uh, Israel leaves something for the elites. So you have to accommodate the Palestinian elites. Otherwise, you get in trouble. So if you go to Ramallah, you know, like a livable city, uh, theaters, restaurants, uh, high culture, fine, uh, but not for the Palestinians generally. Now, that's a lot worse than apartheid. So my feeling is I'm glad that Human Rights Watch followed the lead of B'Tselem, declared Israel a apartheid state, but I think we want to be more careful about it. It really doesn't hold for Israel proper, the legal Israel, 
And it's much worse in the occupied territories. It's certainly much worse in Gaza, which is one of the most horrible atrocities in the world. I mean, Gaza by now is practically no drinkable water. Two million people, a million children, no water to drink. Power stations destroyed, sewage stations destroyed, hospitals attacked, plenty of people killed. Much worse than apartheid. I mean, apartheid was bad enough, but not like that. We should be more careful about it. Throughout history, Professor Chomsky, every conflict has needed a turning point for that conflict to either resolve or for a significant change in that conflict's course. Do you have a view as to what event may affect such a change to the Middle East conflict? In other words, what's the next big move, do you think? Well, the recent moves have been harmful. So one recent move, Trump's accomplishment, which was widely praised in the West, is the so-called Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords, uh, Israel already had tacit relations with the Arab dictatorships. This raised them to a formal relation. Egypt is the worst dictatorship in Egypt's history. U.S. strongly supports it. Trump called al-Sisi his favorite dictator. And Israel's had pretty good relations with Egypt for a long time. It's had tacit relations with the Emirates and with Saudi Arabia, and also with Morocco, which was brought into it, another dictatorship. Well, the Abraham Accords and Bahrain, which was forced into it by Saudi Arabia. Sudan was forced into it by U.S. threats. The U.S. threatened told Sudan that it's going to be kept on the terrorist list unless it accepts the Abraham Accords. So now we have uh, an alliance of the most reactionary, brutal states in the region, some of the worst in the world, and we're supposed to celebrate that. I don't celebrate that. Why should we celebrate that? Of course, it's at the expense of the Palestinians, Kurds, any other oppressed group, but If you ask what's going to change, I think it's raising the level of civilization in the West. That's what has to change. The uncivilized West has to rise to the level where it doesn't celebrate major atrocities and crimes and doesn't support them and is willing to pay attention to the needs of the unpeople. If we can raise the level of civilization in our own countries, then there's a way out. And it's happening. Like among younger people in the United States, as I said, there's strong reaction to the Gaza atrocities. By now, more of them support Palestinian rights than Israel. It's even happening to some extent among others. Could happen in Europe, could happen in Australia, could make a difference, could lead U.S. policy to change could lead to serious solidarity movements which would press the things that can be done. could lead to a change in U.S. policy that would change everything. Even a threat to reduce military and economic aid would have an enormous impact in Israel. And I don't think further moves are impossible. Not easy. A lot's invested in the Greater Israel Project. But 
we have to begin, first of all, by facing reality, not framing the issue as if it's one state versus two states misrepresents the issue. Second, by doing the things we can be done to civilize our own countries, to move towards impelling changes of policy on the parts of government, which in more or less democratic countries like ours can't simply ignore the domestic population. So I think there are a lot of possibilities. And that was the brilliant Professor Noam Chomsky speaking at the recent Edward Said Memorial Lecture in South Australia, organised by Australian Friends of Palestine Association. Five million people amidst the war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone, as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Tune in to Grounding Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands, with programming led by Black and Indigenous community members, in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2021. CR has all kinds of music programs for you to hear. From blues to hip-hop, reggae, classical, punk, jazz, soul, indigenous, experimental, indie, metal and other music styles. Check out 3cr.org.au on the World Wide Web for more info. The last time I was speaking with peace and anti-war activist Brian Terrell, he was with like-minded activists demonstrating against a US military base in the Nevada desert. Since then, he's travelled to more war preparation bases, this time in Germany and Holland, and participated in a speaking tour on drones, Afghanistan and nuclear bombs. Now back home on the farm in Iowa, preparing for winter. I asked Brian first how the time in the Nevada death ended as the time before he and others were arrested. We tried not to get arrested. One person uh, did inadvertently. 
to avoid because of the COVID, to be avoid going to the the, the jail in in Las Vegas is is really squalid. It's one of the worst I've seen anywhere, and it was not a place. Well, it's not a place anybody would want to be, but a place to avoid with the uh, COVID, especially. But we pretty effectively, on several occasions, with roving blockades, we uh, held up traffic for for a couple hours on a couple of occasions, just. Uh, Leaving when the police came and ordered us to leave, and then regrouping when they when their attention is elsewhere. That as far as actually blocking the the roads, especially because the police there strangely have this. Uh, you know, when you've had these actions in the same place over and over again, the the police tend to fall into very predictable patterns and almost uh, ritual behavior. Where when we block the road, you know, we we knew where the police were, but they would approach us you know, a squad of police marching in lockstep, literally, <laughs> you know, like a soldiers in a drill, while a, a, a police car would follow s- slowly behind them. It would take them, you know, five or ten minutes to get to us. <laughs> and then they would give us uh, a warning of anywhere from uh, three to one minute. So we were able to, to use that knowledge, and they pretty much stuck to it, to... Uh, Block the roads, and it wasn't just to block the roads because we had, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, Shutdown Creech website, you'll see photographs. In stopping people on their who are going about their going about their business and making them think about what they're doing, and and we would have signs and banners and uh, names of victims, and sometimes even be able to talk to the uh, to the soldiers who, as as they're driving in, uh, as they're not driving in, as they're as they're stopped, it's a very strange base because the soldiers, the airmen, um, most of them don't live on the base but live in Las Vegas, some 40 miles away, and drive in every day. They get special bonuses because nobody wants to fly these drones. It's a it's a um, very onerous duty, even though they're not in any danger, and even though they're able to sleep in their own beds at night. It's not something that, that uh, people in the military want to do, and the post-traumatic stress is, you know, by all reports, is just, you know, just fantastic, not because they're being abused or in danger themselves, but because they are putting other people in danger, and they're hurting other people from far away. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it's not just a video game. So anyway, these young men and women are driving in in late model cars. Other military bases have been doing similar things. You see a lot of people are driving grandma's old car before it dies because that's all they can afford. But at this base, they, every, you see every car is new and every car has only the driver and no occupants. But that's something, again, about the drone warfare does not build camaraderie. Or the the intimacy that that I know friends of mine who are veterans, you know, vet, you know veterans who are against war and against militarism, veterans for peace, still value that 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 they had made sacrifices and had the um, uh, took risks together with a group of people, and that and that forms bonds that aren't easily broken. But these people are sitting; these soldiers are sitting at computer screens. There may be two or three other people, you know, right close by, and they're they're communicating with 
with many, many people, but it's in, you know, a chat room on the bottom of the screen. So they're, they spend their day in isolation and then they go back and forth 40 miles in and 40 miles back. They apparently none of them think of, you know, they don't make the friends to say, uh, you know, let's drive in together tomorrow, save some gas and, you know, we can talk on the way. That doesn't happen there. And, uh, yeah, I've heard some of the whistleblowers who've left talk about the, the, the solitude of that ride back and forth through the desert. I like to think that that's a time that we can stop people and catch them and catch, catch their imaginations. Because I don't think in the United States, the politicians are going to end this. This is, it's very, um, very convenient for politicians. You know, because the thing that hurts hurts them with war, with these people are they're getting all their donations, campaign donations from, you know, the big defense contractors. But um, you know, what what can really hurt hurt them is to support a war that brings back uh, soldiers, dead soldiers in body bags, or soldiers who are in wheelchairs, soldiers who are paraplegic. So the, the, the drone operators are damaged as well as, as any other soldier, but it does not in any way that's going to show up uh, derail a politician's career. So, you know, it, it has to come from the common people and it has to come from the soldiers as well. So we're appealing all the time, of course, to the U.S. politicians, but I for, speaking for myself, especially I'm appealing to the American people and also appealing to the young men and women who are carrying out these these attacks. Well, after a short spell at home, you were back to Europe and to the Netherlands and Germany. Now, these are U.S. bases you were at. Is that correct? And if so, why are U.S. bases in both those countries with nuclear weapons? It's a very curious institution called a nuclear sharing. So uh, in this occasion, I was in uh, in Holland in the Netherlands, but there's also uh, I've been before to Buchel in Germany, where they have they have this, and they're also in um, Belgium, in uh, Turkey. These are bases. The space I was at at Bokel in in the Netherlands is a Dutch military base, and it has a squadron of U.S. Air Force personnel who are keeping uh, there, we're not sure, between 15 and 20 B-61 bombs, gravity bombs, uh, that they keep ready. And they are rehearsing every day, bringing these bombs, putting these bombs on the Dutch planes. On the, in the Dutch planes, without the bombs, will, you know, take off and practice taking them to, you know, to Russia or Iran. So they're sharing, it's a nuclear sharing that the U.S. has with five countries, five NATO nations. And uh, all these nations are signatures of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which <clears throat> forbids any of the countries to... uh acquire nuclear weapons who don't already have them or to spread nuclear weapons if they don't have, you know, if they have them. And it also requires signatures to make uh, good faith efforts towards disarmament or general disarmament. 
Yeah, Italy is the other country. Right? Yeah, there, there, there are five nations that are doing this. So the sharing agreement, they call it, is not a sharing between governments, but between militaries. For example, the, the, um, in the Netherlands, it's an official <clears throat> state secret that these bombs are there. And everybody knows they're there. But because it's not acknowledged, there isn't any accountability. So none of the, no one in the Dutch government, there's no legislature, there's no parliamentarians ever voted for this or even being officially notified that this is, that this is happening. But everybody knows. In fact, the knowledge of this and these, these, uh, these exercises with the, with the bombers are to, they're very openly state to be part of a, a, a nuclear deterrence so that Russia or China, for example, don't try something uh, that they're, it undermines the democracy in those countries because a, a country ought to be able, there ought to be some kind of political process for a country to decide to be part of, you know, become a nuclear armed nation uh, that shouldn't happen without some participation of, in democracy also these bases this becomes even more serious as time goes on they are potential targets for preemptive first strikes you know, the tension mounts between the u.s and russia especially you know these these bases in italy belgium netherlands they're being targeted by Russian weapons, Russian missiles, who are going to, if they're afraid that those bombers are going to take off bringing bombs to Moscow, they're going to take those take those places out. And so you're you're putting these. Uh, it's really it's foisting nuclear weapons on countries that don't really want them, and it is endangering their democracy and the, avoiding their democracy. And also, it's putting the people there, you know, in in great danger. Two days before we arrived, they started a week-long, before demonstration at Vocal, they started a week-long uh, NATO exercise, all the NATO countries involved. It's exercise called Steadfast Noon. So all over Europe, you know, these F-16s and Tornado jets were taking off and spewing out tons of CO2, darting around, really provoking the Russians, trying to show them that that, that 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 we are that we the NATO countries uh wouldn't hesitate to use nuclear weapons if we need to. That's the um context of our of our protest. So we went there with shovels and uh about twenty five of us from around uh I was the only American but the others you know Dutch and Austrian and German People and uh, we had a picnic on the grass next to the fence. The police knew we were coming and uh, at a very, very small contingent. And we expected, we'd announced we were going to be digging under the fence to uh, stop these exercises. We'd expected to be stopped, if not arrested, in the attempt. But uh, strangely, they didn't even talk to us and even tell us stop. They didn't tell us, you know, you can't do that or. <laughs> Threatened us with arrest, so we we surprised ourselves by able to dig a tunnel under the fence, deep enough and long enough for eight of us to climb through and get to the other side. And it was it was a very exhilarating experience 
for all of us. And uh, we are aged from early 20s to mid-80s in age is, you know, to put our opposition to nuclear weapons into effort and sweat and to get our hands dirty. And we're in the site. We're watching the F-16s flying around, spewing out their smoke and uh, making lots of noise. And we, you know, we know we're in close proximity to the actual you know, weapons that are threatening all life on this planet. And to dig that hole and to come up on the other side, it just, you know, it felt kind of, uh, you know, kind of sacramental, like a, like a, you know, dying in rebirth. And, uh, it was only on the other side that a Dutch soldier came and, and said to me something in, you know, in Dutch that I didn't understand and then said in English, you know, you're under arrest, don't you? <laughs> I said, well, okay, I guess so. I had expected that, but I, nobody had told me. Held for about four hours and released and told we would probably be charged with a crime. But I, this, this idea of calling this, the, you know, this, this NATO exercise uh, steadfast noon, you know, it shows the, there's an arrogant conviction of these NATO militaries that with a deteriorating security environment that they speak of, that they can through an annual display of brute force and this profligate waste of fossil fuel, that they can hold the darkness off forever. You know, that steadfast noon, we can we can bask in the everlasting light of noon forever and keep exploiting the earth and its people. Steadfast noon, and it thinks if you're aware of the the the, the bulletin of atomic scientists every year since 1947 has put out a doomsday clock, which they announce how close we are. They, they, they use, you know, the metaphor of hypothetical global catastrophe of a clock and how many minutes to midnight. And this year we are, the, US, the, the world is, they, they figure, a uh, 100 seconds before midnight, uh, closer to nuclear destruction than even at the height of the Cold War. Their announcement of this is the quote, the dangerous rivalry and hostility among the superpowers increases the likelihood of nuclear blunder. Climate change just compounds the crisis. So this is the question about our, our you know, is, is the world, because of these nuclear weapons, are we able to maintain steadfast noon or are we lurching toward midnight? I, I trust the atomic scientists on this one more than I do the, the military. Brian, when did you catch up with Anne Wright? And I know Anne Wright from a number of years ago when I interviewed her when she'd been on one of the Gaza flotilla ships. I've known Anne for, for many years. And uh, and the last time I saw her, she was at Creech with us in September. And I was really happy. It had been a while since we'd had any time together. And she, unlike some of us, like I've been a, a peace activist since I was 19 years old, before I was really anything else. And Anne is a retired uh, U.S. Army colonel, has a law degree and did, did, did legal work with the U.S. military, and knows about the laws of war. And uh, then from the military, she was for years, she was uh, a uh, diplomat with the U.S. State Department. Uh, she was in charge of reopening the U.S. Embassy that had been closed for many years in Kabul after the invasion in 2001. 
And she um, is one of several State Department diplomats who resigned in 2003 over the U.S. invasion of of Iraq. Is that they they knew that uh, you know the now uh, recently died Secretary of State at the time Colin Powell. They knew uh, it, sh- it should have been obvious to everyone that he was lying about the weapons of mass destruction. And knew that the war, the attack on Iraq was just going to be, um, you know, further destabilizing and making the world much more dangerous. So she left with a lot of, uh, a lot of fanfare. And, uh, yeah, since then she's been very active in the peace movement. I first really got to know Anne. I think, uh, she testified at our trial the first, we were, I was with the first people in 2009 to be arrested at the, uh, drone base at Creech, and she testified at our trial, and so we spent some time together then, and then uh, then in the meantime, uh, we've been defendants on trial together. Uh, she was, we were arrested together at the uh, drone base in Syracuse, New York, and we've been, yeah, I've seen her at the border with Mexico and at many demonstrations in, in Washington, D.C., so no, she's a Good friend and comrade, and I'm really happy. It's it's good that they're. Um, I'm glad that I was with the peace movement for so long, and I I have no regrets. But I'm really glad there's people like Anne who have the knowledge and insight, you know, the experience of what it is to work within the system, and that we have our peace movement is stronger because we have people like her who have been inside. And what were the activities when you went back to Germany? Okay, <clears throat> well, I was just talking about how I don't believe that the political structure in the United States is going to do much about drone warfare. But in, in Germany, I found something very, very different. The coalition led by the uh, Christian Democrats for many years, Conservative Party, Angela Merkel was the chancellor for all those years. Anyway, they just recently lost big time in the elections. And there, there's a new government being formed, and the coalition is going to be with the uh, Social Democrats, the Greens, the Liberal Democrats. And amazingly, well, one thing is, is, is Germany does have a fleet of drones they actually purchased from Israel. They deploy over Afghanistan, there have been, and uh, several other countries, but they haven't been armed. Uh, these are drones that could you know, without any trouble, be be uh, adapted to launch missiles and drop bombs, but they have not done this. And whereas the United States, this happened without any debate and without most people in Congress even being aware of this, uh, most of the American people being unaware of it, the peace movement being pretty much unaware of it. In Germany, this is now one of the big points of public debate, and the and the parties are are actually. Uh, uh, discussing you know, the parties forming the coalition about where this is going to go. And they're also talking about up for, for discussion is the uh, nuclear sharing that the United between the United States and Germany at the base at, at, at Buchel. It's not formally a part of the debate, but there's a lot of agitation now, you know, that Germany has not signed on to the um, United Nations Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, that uh, that has entered into international law, but being ignored by all the nuclear-powered countries. So it was, it was exciting to be there because there's 
a lot of discussion. And my time there got, you know, because I've been involved in the drone protests from the beginning, there wasn't time to set up a um, real speaking tour. I, my, my purpose for going there was mainly to be at at Bokel in the Netherlands. But I got invitations to speak in, with groups in, in Berlin and Hamburg, Frankfurt, Cologne. You know, it was really exciting to be a part of the discussion in a way that we've never had in the United States. Where do you see Germany going in the near future? I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful in people, the, you know, the, the Germans that I know, I don't know the German politics all that well. Are, some are optimistic and some are not. But I think your, your question about in the, the near future, well, I really hope to see success in the near future. I think in the longer term, it's certainly going to be the fact that this discussion is, is even going on. You know, sometimes it takes a while. So even if they do decide to arm these drones, which I think would be a terrible mistake, I think it would be, um, you know, the Germans who supported our saying that it was, that it would, you know, keep our soldiers, keep their soldiers safer. And we, and we see that that really has not been true or that it's more precision, but we know that that's, that the precision of the drones has the, uh, you know, the horrible killing of the Ahmadi family uh, at the end of August. So the family of 10 killed because the, the father of the family was mistaken for a terrorist by, uh, by a U.S. drone, which is, um, you know, very, the, the strike itself was very typical. It was very business as usual, only the fact is that we it happened in Kabul at a time when people were paying attention, and so we, we know about it. Anyway, the, the, the arguments being used for arming the German drones are all pretty empty and pretty easily refuted. But even if the decision goes goes to, to arm the drones and the decision goes to keep uh, up cooperating with the United States nuclear weapons, the, the discussion is not is not wasted. I think think the would hope that the momentum will carry, that people will not get depressed and not get discouraged, but just be glad that they made their voices heard and, and to keep keep pushing. On a different area, Brian, climate change in Europe, you were in Germany and Holland. What are people saying? And I know that last time you were there, it was just after disastrous floods in Germany. Well, it was um, my last day in Europe. I left out of Amsterdam again. So on the 6th of November, my last full day there, there was... In March, there were more than 45,000 people, I think, in, in, in the streets of Amsterdam, which is not a really large city. And it's not because people came from other places, because there were big marches everywhere. So it's a big chunk of the population was out. So that was exciting. And there's a lot of, you know, just the, the lot of passion and pageantry. But I think on, on the ground level, more and more, it's recognized that what um, the, the place that militarism plays and a lot of outrage that I don't hear in the States very much by uh, people in the street in Europe in all these negotiations among the, in the international community, among the nations, is the military is exempted in every case. You know, the amount of CO2 produced by the military is absolutely ignored. 
And it is not just the fact that, you know, that the United States alone is military is one of the, is produces more CO2 than, you know, more than a dozen countries, one of the largest institutional purchasers of, of fossil fuel. And the fact that these exercises are going on every day, spewing out tons and tons of CO2, not so that people can visit their grandmothers or take vacations, but so they can be prepared to end life on the planet when the order comes. Just the, the sheer insanity of it and, the, and, the, and the, the size of it has been very deliberately ignored. But also the fact that one of the things why we're having this huge military and these big exercises of these aircraft carriers in the South China Sea that use more fuel than, than whole cities and these planes flying around uh, Eastern Europe uh, threatening Russia and these U.S. warships in the Persian Gulf. That's huge expenditure of fuel. But the, the real reason why it's going on and one of the reasons for the war in Afghanistan that went so long over gas pipelines is instead of trying to find alternatives to fossil fuel, the nations of the world are fighting to preserve the, the very last drop of it. So this, this fits into, um, you know, I really think that, that, you know, that any discussion of climate change without figuring in what the, where the military fits, it really is not serious. And I'm, uh, I was really glad to hear, you know, publicly and among friends there that the, 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 uh, the awareness, uh, the military, the cost of, of the military on the climate, on the whole environment, not to mention the threat of damage to the earth that, that even a very few nuclear weapons could cause. And the damage to the earth in the production of nuclear weapons, the plutonium mining, the, you know, the testing that, uh, you know, decades later people are still dying of cancer as a result of the, of the tests from years ago that has to be figured in. And in the United States, we're so much in the grip of the military-industrial complex that that discussion is very difficult to have. And how are people and the governments dealing with COVID? I think that I, I see a lot more than there. In my weeks there, the, the rules and protocols change. Like I was in the first days, I was in Netherlands, and things were pretty loose when I came back uh, more than two weeks later, they tightened up some. But uh, unlike in the United States, we had to, if you go into a restaurant, for example, you have to show proof of uh, vaccination. That happened once even trying, even entering a church, I was asked, asked to show my certificate. Yeah, I think it's in Germany taken more seriously than in the Netherlands too. But anywhere in public transportation, masks are required and, uh, I think things are, of course, I was not there when things were, were closed down, but I think uh, just as being a visitor, I think that a, a balance has been found with, uh, with with caution and and some openness. Final words? I'm just you know, grateful that I've had these opportunities, both to be in Nevada and then to be on this trip to Europe. I am cognizant and I'm a little sheepish to know that, that my personal carbon footprint is probably one of the largest on the planet <laughs> over 
over all this, but I but I think it's more than that. I think I, I think that uh, you know, my responsibility is not just to clean up my own act. And I think about that a lot. And I live on a farm. We raise most of our food. When I'm home, we're a very low carbon producing household. I also think that, that at this time in the world's history and at this time in my life, a real obligation to be addressing these issues. And I am very, I'm grateful that I have the opportunities to do that. And that that is a very serious consideration and with some sense of, of repentance over it. I hope that I'm acting in a responsible way at this time. Okay, well, thank you so much once again. Okay, it's always a pleasure, Jan. Peace and anti-war activist Brian Terrell, back on the farm now after the tour of bases in Holland and Germany. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative heteronormative 
family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 5 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. the weekend I spoke to Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees and he wants to talk about the Australian way of the Morrison government. He's been reading about it, he's been listening to it and he's not at all impressed. I mean this afternoon I'm going to go into my coffee shop, I'm going to deal with his claims about can-do capitalism, right? It's a bit like saying Smoke as much as you like if you want to get lung cancer. Mine coal as much as you like if you want to destroy the planet. I mean, basically, that's, that's his violent response in order to be re-elected. That's my, my judgment. Where did he get that saying from? The saying, they can't do capitalism. He said that, he's repeated it several times, at press conferences in the past few days, Morrison has saying that's that's his election manifesto to get out of uh, the uh, restrictions of COVID and the alleged behaviour of of state labour governments which tell people what to do. We need can-do capitalism. That's his remedy, and he's hoping for a a big business economic revival by March or April. Uh, that we'll see him re-elected, and he, he's called it can-do capitalism. So I'm going to write a piece which says, no, on the contrary, we want the very opposite, the very opposite of can-do capitalism. That's, that's, that's my view. I'd imagine there's a few areas of business that actually aren't supporting what he's doing. So I, I, I think that's correct. I mean, at the moment, but we're not... What I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to do is to say, look, there's an alternative theory and vision about the future. And it has nothing to do with the aggressive capitalism that has been the dominant narrative for the past century. And it's that narrative that has produced the destruction to people and planet and contributed to COVID, that we uh, contributed to all the crises, including the destruction of a large part of British Columbia yesterday, which we face, I'm not only going to damn his can-do capitalism, but I'm going to struggle to uh, articulate what the alternative looks like. Have you got those thoughts in your head now? Yeah, I've always got thoughts in my head when you interview me, Jan. Essentially, we've got to uh, learn to live together nationally and internationally in a way that is life-enhancing for every person on the planet. And that means we have to address three or four things, three or four major issues, none of which have to do with capitalism. One is to protect the, uh, the environment. 
The second is to craft a completely different economic order. The third is to deal with the prospect of permanent pandemics. And the fourth one is to deal with the what I call the changing demography. In other words, countries like this one have got a disproportionate number of, of, of older people, and that's going to increase. So the business of caring and sharing um, is going to be a crucial feature, uh, if you like, of a new world order. And if we don't do that, neither the planet nor the people will survive. That's, that's my prediction. You must be very concerned, as many people are, about the, the lying of Morrison. He seems to have got a, an art form of lying now. It's straight out of the, the Trump playbook that um, you can lie as much as you like because that just generates, uh, generates conspiracy theories among a lot of very right-wing authoritarian gullible people. You can see that in the streets of Melbourne. At the moment, on the steps of the um, of the parliament, they might only be a small proportion of the population. But that's the consequence of the of the Morrison lying. I mean, he yesterday more or less encouraged them. He used the same technique that um, that Trump uses about the about the people who invaded the Capitol on January the sixth. So the lying is is a cancer at the at the heart of uh, of a country, of a family, of a community, because we, if you do that, that means there's no such thing as truth and you should, you should not trust anybody. That's how serious uh, Morrison's behaviour is. There's just one thing, though, with Trump. He didn't display his Christianity, if he has got any, all the time on his coat lapels, but Morrison mixes up his, his um, Christianity with his lying. But Morrison is more explicit about his Christianity because he thinks that even with his completely ignorant response to the problems of climate change, I mean, he seems to think that a phenomenon called God will steer us out of this. Trump, by contrast, wasn't so explicit about any religious beliefs, but he sure as hell got a lot of support from the right-wing evangelicals. That was a large part of his base. So having prayer meetings in Washington, uh, going to support the evangelicals, standing outside that church opposite the White House with a Bible in his hand was as demonstrable as Morrison going to Hillsong with all the happy clappers. But we don't have that history here, do we, of that? evangelicals although it is creeping up well it's there it's there all the time because of men and women's easy seduction by what i call one-dimensional power there's good and bad people there's believers and non-believers you don't have to be very bright to adopt that there's (laughs) there's reincarnation and nothing else so abusive power, you can see it in domestic violence, but you can see it in, in the stupid attitude of Peter Dutton towards China, for example. It's there with all the gullibles in, in, religious, in religious organizations. You only have to look at the findings of the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the abuse of children to know the abusive use of power by people who say they are believers is very dangerous. 
I mean, the only I should make a caveat to that because some of the best campaigners for a touch of justice in Australia come from, you know, religious orders. Talk about his performance at Glasgow and how that's going to reverberate on Australia. Yeah, well, his behaviour was shameful. It was uh, ignorant. It was actually very cruel towards all the young people of the world, in particular indigenous people, the indigenous people of Australia, the indigenous people of the Pacific, Pacific Islands, wherever people are vulnerable to the awful consequences of climate change. Basically, Morrison went there, sponsored by Santos, a big energy company, fearful of losing votes in coal constituencies in Australia, and basically said, I don't care. He finished up, uh, he finished up siding with Saudi Arabia and Russia in saying that he wouldn't have anything to do with the, um, the agreement to um, control the emission of methane gases. So he was, he was indifferent, he was cruel, he was ignorant. In fact, he comes back here as a vandal uh, towards the environment. And you can see that as soon as the um, members of the National Party like Matt Canavan and um, Barnaby Joyce start to open their mouths and saying, coal industry forever. And also that late decision by China and India regarding coal. Could you see the Australian hand behind that? Well, Australia was enthusiastic about that. Whether they were, uh, you know, most people ignored Morrison as a person of, of no interest, uh, as, a, as a very boring, uninteresting person at, the, at Glasgow. You could see that. I mean, he most, when he spoke, it was mostly empty seats. But um, he's obviously, the, if you listen to what Canavan and um, Joyce said, although I wish the media wouldn't give them so much oxygen, you can see that the the final statement about um, whatever it was, pairing off or, or you know, lessening, lessening the effect of coal instead of abolishing that fossil fuel industry, Morrison was completely directly, at least indirectly, possibly directly, involved in that. So it was the act of a vandal to do that. If he was blind to that, he only has to switch the television on this morning to see what is happening in British Columbia to behave as though the world is not threatened because of the, the policies which he supports. Another issue I'd like you to talk about is the fact that maybe Morrison's going to be left out in the cold very soon because you seem to have China and the US cozying up a little bit on how they're going to get on together and we've got Morrison and co slamming China every time they get a chance. Well, you know... He might regret some of that. Well, look, Australia's blind allegiance to the United States is absurd, absolutely absurd. The United States administration couldn't care less about Australia, couldn't care less about being loyal to Australia. The evidence is, and the, the wonderful John Menadieu wrote about it this week, the evidence is that... Um, the United States has gladly found new trade opportunities in the areas of trade that uh, China used to do with, with Australia. China has, has said, you know, Australia is uh, 
not to be communicated with, not to be traded with. It's the it's the pariah country in that in this part of the world, and the Americans, the American corporations are now making riches by adopting the uh, trade opportunities that previously were Australia's. <laughs> the idea of Australia on China is what the wonderful Paul Keating said. It's like throwing toothpicks at a mountain. It's crazy. Just finally, Stuart, the end of coal. We know it's going to happen sooner or later and we know that people are going to suffer from it. People are going to lose their livelihoods and jobs. But you must have lived through the 80s in England when the coal was phased out there. That's, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, I mean, I, although by that time I was by that time I was living in Australia. But um, look, the, we're talking about transition to a different ways of living, different forms of income, different communities and localities. And everybody in in the world faces deals with transitions. You know, every day, different kinds of transition. It is not only about people living in coal constituencies. Of course, they must be supported and enabled through fine qualitative, uh, quality ways of living into the future. But so must everybody. So must everybody. And all of the people of that part of British Columbia right at this moment face an enormous crisis. Their water, their electricity, their homes are, are destroyed. They have to transition out of this crisis to a different way of thinking and living. That faces all of us. It is a cultural and historical nonsense to behave as though this only affects coal. But of course people are going to be, have to deal with the law. Everybody has to deal with loss before you can proceed to change. You know? <laughs> there's a social psychology, there's an economic transition in, tied up with that process. What's so great about being a, being a miner? I mean, I've I'm familiar with all my people and ancestors in, in the coal mines of South Wales. I mean, they used to laugh and say the only, day, the only time they saw fresh air and the blue sky was when they sang at the Eisteddfod, because they spent most of their life underground. I'm not sure why that is regarded as such, a, such an amazing way of living. So the job ahead is to um, re-educate the Labour Party as well. Absolutely, but we desperately need courage, we need vision, we need theories for living in which there's a convergence of the issues about climate change, about the pandemic, about economics and about the changing demography. And in the middle of all that, I haven't said anything about nuclear weapons. To simplify, it's about a change from selfishness to altruism, from violence to non-violence. If, you know, if, we, if we want to find an aspirin, a sort of aspirin cure, I'd use those, those two sets of opposites. Thank you as always. Okay, Jan, lovely to talk to you. And if you'd like to read more about Stuart Rees, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, Pearls and Irritations is a, an excellent way to find out what's happening particularly in Australia, but also writers speaking about issues around the world. That's John Minajew's Pearls and Irritations online. Hey, you mob. 
This virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Coming up at the Nightcap, Better Late, running till 3am every Friday and Saturday, featuring the best local and international bands and DJs, including Zeitgeist Freedom Energy Exchange, Gypsy Brown with Tando, Spasta with Adriana and Odd Mob, Domingo Latino Sundays with La Influencia and Calle Luna. Upcoming shows including Art vs. Science, Mod Con, I Know Leopard and more. For info and tickets, head to thenightcat.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Next, a follow-on from an interview a couple of weeks ago with... Nick Rose from Sustain, the Australian Food Network. He was talking about a campaign to assist women Palestinian farmers who've been devastated by successive Israeli policies of completely locking down Gaza and continuing to bomb the most recent in May this year. This is part one of a webinar to launch the appeal for the women farmers of Palestine. My name's Nasser Mashni. I'll be your MC this evening, morning, afternoon, depending on where you're watching. And I'm honoured to be joined by a magnificent ensemble of panellists you see across the screen. We've got guests from all over Australia and Palestine. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I'm speaking to you today from the ancestral lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge my Indigenous brothers and sisters as the traditional custodians of this land. Their culture and connection to this land is the longest in human history. I'd also like to pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge our Palestinian people, for they too are Indigenous people, connected to their lands as Indigenous people are connected all over the world. I honour their determination, their resilience, their steadfastness as they struggle against apartheid and the same settler colonialist system that we live under in Australia today. This land, Australia, was never ceded. There is no treaty. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land, as will all of Palestine always be Palestinian land. 
Tonight's event's about Gaza and what we can collectively do to make a difference. Throughout the uh, stream, we'll post some links in the chat so you can see uh, ways that you can help. But very simply, if you Google GoFundMe, Rebuilding Women-Owned Farms in Gaza, you can Google Sustain or search Sustain in Instagram. But we'll put those links in the chat as well. To give you an idea, for those that don't know, Gaza is a war-ravaged strip, poverty-stricken, a population of 2 million people trapped in 365 square kilometres. It's now entering its 15th year of a medieval siege that determines the calorific intake of the individuals in there and only allows that amount of food to come in. It's one of the most densely populated places on Earth. And to give people an idea, by way of comparison, 365 square kilometres, 2 million people. Melbourne is 10,000 square kilometres and there's only 5 million. If Australia was to have the population density of Gaza, instead of being 25 million people, it would be closer to 43 billion people. The latest massacre in May this year resulted in nearly 200 million US dollars of damage to Gaza's agriculture sector, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Agriculture. This damage included more than $10 million of damage to greenhouse structures, as well as plants and the seedlings in their greenhouses. So the impact is not just then, but ongoing as we're struggling to create new crops. According to UNRWA, nearly half of the population of Gaza now relies on food aid. Before the siege, 15 years ago, 80,000 refugees in Gaza were receiving social assistance. Now more than a million Palestinians in Gaza require urgent food aid every day. In the wake of the May bombings in Gaza, the Gaza Urban and Peri-Urban Agriculture Platform, GUPAP, reached out to Sustain, the Australian Food Network, and requested solidarity from Sustain to support the process of recovery by strengthening the capacity of small-scale women agripreneurs as individual producers and as an organised collective to produce healthy food for themselves and their communities. Working with these women to form a collective, the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum is part of the goal for a true food sovereignty in Palestine and for a lasting and just peace. Tonight we're launching that campaign and you'll hear firsthand from representatives from GUPAP and UF about the reality in Gaza and their struggle for food sovereignty. You'll hear from the Melbourne, from Melbourne partner organisations, the Global Gardens of Peace, the Just Food Student Collective and Free Palestine Melbourne all of whom are working with Sustain to support this campaign, and you can make a difference too. A big thank you to everyone that's donated so far. We've raised over $5,000, which is fantastic. And don't forget, you can help too. We'll put those links in the chat. Go to the GoFundMe campaign page. It's my honour to introduce our first speaker. Uh, he'll be followed by a number of others, but Mr Ahmed Sorani, who's the founder and general coordinator of GUPAP. Ahmed will introduce his fellow presenters, Siham Musaddar, and Riem Athama. They'll be followed by Nick Rose from Sustain, Andrew Laidlaw from Global Gardens of Peace, Amy Tracy and Savannah Subsky of the Just Food Collective, Laurel Thomas of Free Palestine, Melbourne, and Rasha Taya of Better Shane. Over to you, Ahmed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nasser. Thank you very much. Thank you all, my dears, and thanks to all uh, supporters in solidarity with our, with our people in Palestine and in Gaza under the siege. This campaign, as well as this important webinar, comes in a time where the uh, socioeconomic situation in Gaza Strip continues to deteriorate uh, as a result of the imposed closure 
and siege on Gaza Strip since more than 15 years ago, as well as where the uh, crossings are almost closed and the movement of the people and the, the goods are also banned most of the time, if not all of it. Our uh, people is, uh, is, is banned even from uh, controlling its natural resources, and that is one of the biggest challenges that we are facing, not only in Gaza, but also in whole Palestine. Today is the uh, International uh, Food Day, and this is really an important moment to mention that the food is still being used as a weapon, unfortunately, in Palestine, and especially with the population, the two million population in Gaza where the Palestinian people uh, do not have any access to reach freely and directly its natural resources on the ground. We wished and hoped that this food could be used as a tool to facilitate a different reality on the ground, to facilitate and, dec- and create a more stable situation that could lead to a real and just peace on the ground uh, for our people, as well as the protection of its basic uh, rights. On the top of these rights is the right to Uh, sovereignty. Uh, you know, we are talking about different types of rights in everywhere, everywhere, but the right to sovereignty uh, is considered by the Palestinians, by all of us, as the mother of rights. Food sovereignty means for us that our people has free and direct access to our natural resources, to our land, water, to have a freedom of movement as well as a freedom of our goods. Food sovereignty also, it means for the Palestinians that not dealing with the Palestinian issue as a very much a humanitarian issue. Our issue uh, is not linked only uh, for the humanitarian aid from here and there, but it's also very important for any international assistance to contribute in enhancing the resilience of our people under the occupation, under the siege, as well as the protection of its uh, rights, a right to have a more sustainable development process. Food sovereignty also means for us, as we understand it in our organization, to move and shift from the, the square of needs, the square of humanitarian needs, to the square of rights and resources, where the local resources should be respected and highlighted. Our people still have a lot of resources, so we need to have a free access to these resources in order to make the best use of it, to develop towards a more sustainable development in Gaza Strip as well as in, in Palestine. Our people along the past period of protracted crisis conditions have developed a lot of uh, positive coping strategies to confront the state of the, the closure, sustainable continuous closure, as well as the occupational procedures on the ground. What is requested from all of us, as well as from the international community and all INGOs working in Palestine, as well as in Gaza, to make the best use of these uh, positive coping strategies that has been developed by our people and to build on these and not neglecting these important initiatives that has been developed by our people along the past years of the occupation as well as the years of the, uh, the closure uh, in Gaza Strip. We do believe in GUBAB, a local community-led multi-stakeholder uh, space uh, working for influencing the agricultural policies as well as seeking the rights of our people, facilitating more spaces for the local farmers, men and women, to raise the voice as well as to try to, to mobilize the resources for the development of their agriculture projects. What we also requesting and inviting our, uh, our friends and those in solidarity with our people is also to build a more participatory fundraising campaigns. And this is part of our activism with our friends and partners in Australia. We do believe that developing a more participatory and solidarity fundraising campaigns 
is an important tool to confront the preconditioned funding coming to Palestine as well as to Gaza. That is really very important, and I wish and we do believe that uh, this important initiative and campaign will bring more support and solidarity to our uh, farmers in Gaza, mainly to the women agribeneurs, where those women have been uh, organizing themselves in a local forum to protect their rights, to exercise police influencing and advocate their rights as well. That's so far from uh, my end, and uh, I would like to introduce my colleague uh, Siham, talking about the, the impact of the last war in May in Gaza on the food security uh, situation in Gaza. Siham. Thank you, Ahmad. Hello, everyone. My name is Siham Al-Musadr. Uh, I'm a meal assistant at Cooper. I'm going to talk about the impact of May bombing uh, on food security and sovereignty. The last aggression on Gaza in May uh, has resulted in a devastating situation of instability in the Gazan economic, political, and social infrastructure. In addition, uh, there have been humanitarian consequences of the conflict, resulting in minimizing access to basic needs such as food and healthcare. As it's known, food is one of the most vital basic needs that guarantees the survival of a human being. Gaza has been on a restricted blockade since 2006, hence limited access to these basic needs is found. Although the blockade on Gaza has been for over 15 years, the recent conflict has resulted in tightening this blockade, rooted in severe restrictions on the freedom of movement of groups. The latest escalation in hostilities has resulted in the loss of more than 100 million dollars in the agricultural sector and this has negatively impacted the food security in Gaza and the livelihoods as well. As it's known, uh, most of uh, people in Gaza uh, are working as farmers. We have like 40 to 50 percent of, of farming families and they, are, and they represent a large proportion of the Gazan community. We also um, have a contamination of agricultural products due to the airstrikes on uh, land, on farms. This constrains future cultivation and possibly risks exposure to contamination. We also have lack uh, of resources and research facilities in Gaza that may limit the ability to conduct research on the environmental impact of uh, the aggression and the airstrikes we had in May. Those explosions have affected the quality of the soil as well as the water. And those are the main resources we need to have a sustainable and to reach food security and sovereignty. At the end, I'll say that farmers were the, the biggest or the most people who were affected by the latest aggression. See, I will introduce Nermeen. Nermeen is a, an English language and teaching methods graduate. She's a coordinator of the Northern Governorate of Gaza in the Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum. And also she's an, uh, the owner of Nestro for safety agriculture and food processing projects. Thanks, Sihan, and thank you everyone for this great webinar. I'm Nermin from North Gaza. I'm a coordinator for Northern uh, Governorate for UF, uh, Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum which has founded in 2019 as a project output for the 
Gaza Urban Agriculture Platform, I mean Gubab. So Gubab is an incubator and the mother of the UF. Forum is an open space for all women who have entrepreneurial projects and ideas. The, the Forum uh, targets all the five governorate of the Gaza Strip, and there are five coordinators to facilitate the field for projects in each governorate. Also, forium, uh, the projects in the Forum vary between uh, food processing, food production, and animal production. Uh, we have started with uh, 30 members, then 50, and now we have 103 projects. The forum aims to enhance women, let the projects uh, resilient, sustain, and empower them economically and legally. Uh, also, networking between entrepreneurial women to exchange information in various fields such as e-marketing, project management, advocacy campaign, and the rule of the Gubab was clear and great in all the activities that were implemented in the forum. Uh, in the forum, whether in preparing uh, label cards to uh, confirm the quality of a product, facilitate the marketing process, and insert them in, the, in food parcels. Uh, and also in the e-marketing campaign, whether in terms of capacity building or in terms of the create Facebook pages for each project and make an adv uh, advertising video for a project. Of course, there's no doubt that every project in the world has a proportion of risk and the owner of the project always tries to overcome these problems by preparing project plans, determining the risk and working to solve them. Where, when we thinking about the risk and the trust that women uh, lead the projects have best in Gaza, of course, uh, it's more than the normal one. In the light of the turbulent threats uh, to projects in Gaza between occupation and it is escalation, uh, from time to time, uh, the high prices in production inputs as a result of the crossing closure and also the COVID-19, uh, actually, the last pumping uh, sustained over 11 days more than 50% of the uh, of the women's farms were damaged partially or completely, uh, as am I in my project. I'm the owner of the Nistro for hanging and safety crops. And in my project, Nistro, I mean Nistro for safety and hanging agriculture, which started at the end of 2018 as a way to find work, try to be uh, self-independent. Uh, I started to use uh, the resources around me, in particular uh, with the 180-tour greenhouse, I mean land, in which I planted sa uh, safety and hanging the crops by using the vertical and hierarchical system at the same time. So I planted hanging lettuce, strawberry in a hierarchical way, uh, with the recycling water system to increase the production and reduce the water consumption in compared with the traditional way. In 2020, I was able to expand the project area to 360 and started using the tough rocks uh, and an artificial soil isolated uh, media to reduce water consumption, reduce the use of uh, fertilizer to obtain safety products, like tomatoes, beba, and iggy plant, and celery. I'm working hard to diversify my products. So thanks to Gubab for providing me uh, with a grant uh, and providing my project with a storage freezer, freezer with a capacity of uh, 40, uh, 40 liters to freeze okra and mallow for the off-season 
thus diversifying my products and make a sustain for my project. Uh, that's what happened for, another, uh, for other entrepreneur women in UWF. I mean the intervention of the UWF in cooperation with Gubab in supplying the production inputs, uh, which make difference with entrepreneur women in rebuilding their project and start again. And we don't forget the negative impact of pumping and pressure on the psyche of entrepreneurs' women, so uh, reactional uh, recovery and psychosocial interactive day for UWAF members was organized for all women in cooperation with GoBab. So thanks, GoBab, and on my behalf and on my and the entrepreneurs' women behave, we thank you for this solidarity uh, campaign with us to support our project and, perform, uh, and improve it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nimeen. Now we'll, uh, we'll hand back to Ahmed and uh, Seham. Thank you, uh, Nermeen, very much. You and all women agribineers who are the member of the uh, of Urban Women Agribineers Forum in Gaza. One of the key uh, reasons for the establishment of this important local forum, it is an important local model that is community led by the women agribineers not only to mobilize some resources and inputs for their project sustainability, but also it's a place and a space where they can raise their voice, where they can advocate their rights with different governmental, non-governmental actors, as well as the international programs, agricultural programs working in Gaza. Thank you very much, uh, Nermeen. Maybe, uh, Siham, you have uh, some more reflection on our aspiration in Gubab as well as the uh, food sovereignty approach that we are taking and considering in Gubab as one of our key approaches. I hand it over for you, Siham, and then I can raise maybe some other points. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you, Nirmeen. I second what Ahmed and Nirmeen said about Gubab and Wuaf, about assisting the women to initiate their own power boy and voice and providing them with capacity building in different fields to help them continuing their businesses. Those businesses uh, include animal production, plant production, and uh, food processing. One of the capacity building uh, fields they provide are uh, managerial and technical skills to handle those small projects. Those small projects um, serve as the, like a main point as I said before, I second what Ahmed and Nermeen said about Wuaf and Gupab. Gupab mainly assists the women to initiate their own power and voice. They provide them with the technical skills as well as the managerial skills to help them managing their project. And by this, uh, they uh, provide advocacy for them because financial stability will help them um, raising their voice and reaching and accomplishing their goals of having their own businesses. Their businesses are mainly about animal and plant production as well as food processing. This will help in food security and sovereignty in Gaza. The main um, products they have like date-based tools, stevia sweeters, uh, gluten-free flour, as well as uh, fresh vegetables and fruits, honey, and etc. Those projects are sold at local markets and they are important actors contributing to the local food systems and ensuring healthy and nutritious food to local and poor consumers. 
we are planning to provide food baskets to those vulnerable people from the agripreneurs women. And this we are closing the loop to help providing food for everyone in Gaza, as well as helping uh, those women to sell their product. Thank you, uh, Siham. Uh, you know, in Palestine and Gaza, we have a strong conversation on change and how change could be happened, how change can be uh, facilitated for the local community to lead the process of the change. And this is part of our strategy in Gubab as well as UF is to, to continue our efforts to facilitate more interactive and participatory spaces for women, for farmers, not only to, uh, as I mentioned, also to, to try to influence the policies. One of the biggest achievements joined uh, with uh, with Gubab is that the uh, the women agribeneurs have recently managed to get for the first time a kind of legal registration, and they got uh, at least uh, 35 women agribeneurs have managed to get finally their legal uh, coverage from the Ministry of National Economy, as well as getting the uh, what is called labeling for their products. That will help them much to facilitate marketing their products with fair prices. Many, so many projects uh, are being implemented in Gaza along the past years, but it didn't bring real changes on the ground. So we do believe in Gubab that working on influencing policies and advocating the rights could also bring real changes and make difference in the lives of the vulnerable people, in the lives of those who are living in poverty. So that's really a key part of our strategy uh, that is being discussed jointly with our members, beneficiaries, uh, as well as the members of the local forums. I would like also to highlight my last point regarding linking local, national with regional uh, and the global activism. Gubab is actually a member of at least 10 global uh, networks, platforms and forums where we can discuss, reflect and contribute in discussing the global uh, policies that are affecting directly or indirectly our local food system in Palestine where we get the opportunity to raise their voice as well as to contribute in order to influence uh, these policies in this regard. In terms of our aspiration, uh, maybe we have uh, one of our, our biggest aspirations is that our people will be living in dignity. Uh, like all other peoples in the world, uh, our people has the right to live in dignity, to live in stability, uh, and to live in peace, but not any peace with any price. No, what we are seeking and working for is a real just peace that respects and protects the rights, the basic rights of our people, the Palestinian people. And on the top of these rights, the rights, the right to sovereignty, uh, which means uh, more control by the Palestinians on their lands, water resources, as well as other natural resources like other peoples in different parts of the world. And the second part of the webinar will be on the program next week. And they'll be asking you for your support to make this campaign a success. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.